Welcome to Packet Pushes, the data networking podcast that gets deeper and extracts more liters of blood per stone than, well, anyone. Today's show is sponsored by Arcus Networks, and we're supporting the launch of their multi-cloud networking strategy, which is known by the name of ArcEdge and Arc Orchestrator Software. Now, we know that multi-cloud deployment is a reality for most enterprises. Mostly, enterprises don't choose to have a combination of Azure, AWS, Google, and Oracle, and a range of public clouds, as well as their on-premises data center in a colo or in the building that they have, but that's what actually happens. And it happens for lots of different reasons. And that challenge of bringing together what are almost incompatible networks. So that is because then they all run IP. Yeah. They sort of all connect, but they don't operate the same. They don't look the same. They don't have the same language to some extent. They're almost incompatible in a certain sort of way. And so most enterprises, when they get into the multi-cloud situation, start thinking about how do I start to, cope with the diversity of networks? How do I bring the skill level? How do I operate these at a, at a level? How do I design and manage these? How do I get visibility? And how do I solve those challenges? And Arcus Networking, which is a company that we've been talking to for over two years now, has extended their solution from the data center to the multi-cloud. And that's what we're talking about today. Joining us today is Kia Patel, the CTO of Arcus, and Shri Kanan, who is the VP of Product Management from Arcus Network. Welcome, gentlemen. Let's get straight into this. So, Shri, let's get the elevated picture around this. What is it that ArcEdge and Arc Orchestrator is doing? At a very high level, Arcus multi-cloud networking platform enables highly available connectivity for your workloads and data at hyperscale performance with tight security across any cloud, any cloud providers, any region, and any site. And the key highlight here is the hyperscale performance and the security. As you transcend the boundaries from one cloud to the other and to the data centers, the security mm-hmm. and hyperscale performance, we, we ensure that there is no compromise to it. And we do all this um, using single software, single architecture, uh, which spans across switches, routers, and the internet gateways in the cloud, Greg. So there's a couple of things there. One is you're coming out with this product straight up and you're doing all four major cloud providers, which is not normally what other multi-cloud companies do. Most of the other multi-cloud companies we've spoken to do one or two vendors. They don't normally do all of them. Uh, and the other thing that you're emphasizing here is performance. And a lot of the others have sort of, Mm, you know, steered the conversation away from performance. So I think maybe they're the two big takeaways I'm going to take away from that lead-in. So let's jump deeper into it. Let's walk a little bit deeper into that. So Shri, let's talk a little bit about ArcEdge and how that extends the data center cloth fabric into the cloud. ArcEdge is is the data plane um, forwarding element here. The most important thing that we have to remember is ArcEdge is packaged in very decomposable format. So that is, it's based on the microservices architecture that ArcOS is originally built. So yeah. we can package up the microservices into a VM and make it available um, like a VNF that inserts itself into the VPCs and the VNets in AWS and Azure, for example. Or you can take the ArcEdge, package it as a soft CPE and insert it as part of your virtualized infrastructure in the data center and managed by any of your hypervisor management platform. Or if you choose to do it in Kubernetes, where you let the microservices architecture that you have and part of the data proxy and maybe the service mesh type uh, infrastructure that you have, you want to integrate with that, ArcEdge can go there also. So the, the key element that we bring to the table for our customers is the flexibility here. But ArcEdge is a, it's a virtual router, it sounds like, effectively. Is that the right way to think about it or not really? It is. It is. And uh, uh, one of the interesting things that ArcEdge does uh, cover from an architecture standpoint, Ethan, is that its ability to create and support um, new forms of overlay, which makes it very interesting and easy, um, as Sri mentioned, for us to extend in the cloud from the data centers. Yeah. Mm. Be it with IPsec or be it with any kind of other overlay. Well, that, that, since we're talking about cloud, that's an, just an important distinction to make architecturally, that this is a virtual device that sits in that cloud environment as opposed to like an orchestration tool that tries to leverage the cloud native constructs. You, you need more capability, so you're running a virtual router that uh, now you can apply orchestration to. The most important element is the innovation here, Ethan, the even though we say virtual router, the virtual router architecturally is vertically integrated with the underlying uh, hardware or the merchant silicon, and there is an 
operating system element that it runs on and it is integrated with that and then the routing function on top of it mm-hmm. what we have pursued architecturally is to decompose it where if you choose to run them in their individual containers individual uh, services you can do that uh, many customers are not ready for it in terms of their readiness as part of the deployment so they prefer a vm vertically packaged instance which is what uh, is a popular form factor today we can containerize it make it compact give it to the orchestration platforms or we can package it as a virtual router like the way you described it or we can even take it even more tightly integrated with a, a bare metal server and then make it available as a an on-prem router it's the same software but packaged differently got it so i'm interacting with the same arc os uh, wherever and now that's been extended into cloud and made Flexibly deployable sounds like you can put it in anywhere in an easy way using the orchestration package you've got and 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 right as you said end up with uh, the same network operating system everywhere which of course is highly desirable indeed and there is a tremendous benefits in doing that from an operator standpoint Ethan it allows you a to validate and uh, once you have validated ArcOS at one point the control plane can easily now be deployed in cloud or on prem uh, beat on a on a router or a switch, or like you said, virtually on a bare metal server. Because people who've tried to configure a a VPN service between a cloud provider and their on-premise stuff, that's a world of hurt. There's a lot of VPN services that the cloud providers try to give you. Like uh, Microsoft doesn't even speak the same language. Like they have some weird language about for every single term of VPN that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That is a major problem when you're trying to configure some sort of overlay network. That is. And um, the benefits here are once you have known um, how to work with uh, Arcos, in in other words, once you have onboarded Arcos in your network, a lot of those technicalities become a lot more simplified and automated, thereby reducing your OPEX costs. So ArcEdge is an agent that can sort of be anywhere. And this sort of calls back to what the ArcOS, which is your operating system that comes from the switch, because you've been uh, running an operating system that runs on switches, and this is sort of an extension of that technology, I guess. But having just an Edge appliance doesn't solve the problem. It's really about the orchestration piece. How do you operate all of those tools when they're spread across so many different platforms? The, the most important thing in orchestration today is not about another managed service or another abstracted console or any of those things. There is a cloud operating model. And if you look at the networking side of it, the traditional CCIEs have an operating model that they have used uh, for many, many years or even decades. And there is this newer cloud operating model for the networking that comes from the service mesh and the DevOps principles that is built in. What we have adopted, and this is something that we we take pride in, is like, how do we unify these operating models out there? And when you think of these operating models, it's basically based on the playbooks. The most popular playbook out there is the HashiCorp Terraform and the Terraform templates. How do you Hmm. take the Terraform templates, make it applicable and interesting and kind of unifying with the CCIE uh, cloud operating model and be able to take that and give it to the DevOps person so that when they orchestrate the application connectivity, they they are able to integrate it into a brownfield deployment and management very easily. So that unifying effect where the CCIEs can use the Terraform templates for their operating model when they are using an IP, when they are deploying and managing the IP-based network versus a DevOps person when they are thinking of, say, a database MongoDB connectivity and they want to integrate some of the networking aspect of it yeah. for the MongoDB replication type scenario. So you're sort of, How they you're can sort of talking about that. With this one. Yeah, you're sort of highlighting the gap there between the idea of finger-defined networking, and I think finger-defined networking includes the CLI and Python scripts these days. So if you've been putting something together with Terraform, Ansible, and some some CLI configuration on your head-end VPN concentrator, you're really going to come unstuck because you're really not welding that together into a solution. You need a orchestration engine over the top that's quite advanced and a lot more sophisticated and also multi-vendor aware to bring that all together. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah. And uh, one of the other interesting things that's helping us a lot in that arena is open config and Yang models. Um, The way we have structured it uh, using open config and Yang models have made reasonably, extremely easy to 
interoperate and, and expand and extend it using Terraform scripts on top of it. A few years back when OpenConfig and, and EAG models and so on began to take off, I was wondering how well that was going to stick. And what you just said kind of confirms they are sticking around. People really are leveraging those models. And now tools as like Terraform, as they, they come into the fore and more and more and more people understand them and know how to use them, having that model to work with you uh, is a lovely reference to have. The benefit of that, again, is significant reduction in an OPEX cost. If you look at it from an operator standpoint, on an onboarding systems, you can have a native open config interface to configure routers and switches. And then for your cloud extensions, you can now use a Terraform um, that interfaces with open config and off you go, connecting a single fabric mm. uh, within uh, data centers and across cloud. And I think there's a few things there too, because the networks of the various cloud companies radically different to normal networks. They don't even operate on the same, like e even though IPSEC is standardized and you have, you know, the filter list at both ends and who's going to send traffic and, you know, what sort of keys you're going to match up with and that sort of stuff. That's all fine for point to point VPNs. But if you get together when you're starting to build uh, full meshes or partial meshes, because you want your Azure uh, network to talk to your Oracle network, or if you've got a, a container a deployment running Kubernetes over here in Google Cloud, and you want to let that talk to your EKS in AWS because you've got some sort of active standby thing going on, you've got a really complicated system up and running at this point. What is more important here is the market reality. The, there are two market realities that we have to be very, very cognizant about. The one the transition from the virtual machines to the containers is still, it's accelerating, it is still going through, but it's only about, in our opinion, about one third of its way. So two thirds are still in their virtual machines, bare metal uh, infrastructure, and one third is on the container side, mainly from the application deployment and management. So what that means underlying is, if you look at it from the connectivity standpoint, the data centers with their IP-based networks are first-class citizens, and you have your IP-class infrastructure, which is the most popular infrastructure there. And the cloud providers have their own version of their networking, which is primarily a VPN or an IPsec overlay type network. I mean, you cannot do everything at the IPsec. Yeah, and, and their IPsec is pretty simple because they've got to operate it at scale. Tens of thousands of customers using this IPsec. It's not feature-rich, shall we say, because there's no money in being feature-rich for a cloud provider. And, but the reality is, and I think this is, this is, this is the secret of ArcEdge to me, is I can take ArcEdge and put it and give it to the group that's running a Kubernetes stack in EKS, and I can give ArcEdge to another group that's running something, you know, VMs in Azure, and I can give it to another group to put on the switch in my IP class in my data center and say, please put this agent there, you know, in whatever form. It can be a, a VNF running on top of a switch. It can be a VNF running on a server. It can be, you know, whatever it is. And then my Arc orchestration tool can then bring them all together into a unified network. Is that, am I on the right track there? Absolutely. The visualization that you're painting with your words, it's almost like poetry to me. Uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> so the most important thing here is <laughs> the way you described it in terms of the nodes, the, the key element that we bring to the table is the scale that you anticipate at the AWS outpost or any of these overlay level. At the routing level with the BGP, say for example, 500K plus routes in the VPC when, you are, mm. when you're operating at the edge of the network is the reality today. There are not many mm. vendors out there who can support that many BGP routes per VPC table. We have customers who have few tens of VPCs, maybe like four cloud accounts, and they have they offer it as a SaaS service with one data center, whatever they are that they are offering as a software as a service. Mm. And we have this top end of the spectrum with top five SaaS provider out there with 19,000 VPCs spread across AWS, Azure, and their own data center with their own VLANs and everything. So we are operating at both end of the spectrum today. We have customers who are at like 19,000 VPC, and here is another customer who are like 60 VPC. Yeah. So uh, that's why I said it's like poetry. That when you painted that picture to me, that was like beautiful. You know, well, that scaling thing is another issue. We'll talk more about that in the in a, in a little bit about how important the scaling and the hyper performance, as you call it, of these products is. But I guess the flip side of this is if I'm looking at 
16,000 VPC sounds like a nightmare just off the cuff, but you must have like, like massive problems with things like overlapping IP addresses and NAT and just tracking all of those uh, assets. Like every IP subnet inside of a VPC is an asset that you have to track. The conversation for us with uh, this large customer started exactly around that. How do you, the predominant architecture today, um, both from the big companies as well as some of the startups, is the hub and spoke, the transit architecture. The transit mm. architecture is fine when you can support 5,000 VPCs and everything, but what if you want regional separation? How do you yeah. make a transit hub in US? connect to a transit hub in Europe and be able to exchange routes, be able to learn the VPCs on each side, be able to learn the private subnets that are beneath the VPCs here, which is not exposed to the public gateways. There are so many of these issues come. And when we took a step back and said, okay, let's start from a clean slate, how our COAS with the first principles on how it is built for the data center and IP class principles that is built in, mm. the most important element is flexibility. You can deploy it as a full mesh. You can deploy it hub and spoke. You can interconnect the hub and spoke with mesh, exchange the routes. That, that element of uh, elegance that was there in the flexibility is what we were able to extend it into the multi-cloud okay, okay. So today- I'm having, a, I'm having, a, I'm having a moment of doubt. I'm having a moment of doubt, Sri. You're talking about <laughs> a, an arbitrary architecture from full mesh to partial mesh to hub and spoke to whatever I need. Most companies would not promote that vision. You're actually saying that you can build an arbitrary mesh of connectivity and make that work out. Just give me a, some quick insights into that. I'm sure you know if people want more information, they should contact you to dive deep into how you do that. But that instantly goes like, uh, really? The predominant architecture is still going to be hub and spoke. Yeah. So if you designate your, say, a US East Virginia region as your primary region, the majority of your traffic is going to congregate in Virginia and then extend out to Ohio, Oregon, San Francisco, and other mm. regions. But you can very well have a hub in Brussels for all the traffic in EU. The Western Europe traffic can be either in London or Brussels, you congregate there. Now mm. you need to connect the Virginia region with the London region for the shared infrastructure. You're not going to deploy 700 microservices accessing the same MongoDB, replicate the MongoDB infrastructure individually across the region. You are likely to build your MongoDB primaries in Virginia and replicate it in Europe and Asia Pacific. Now, you are now going into the realm of the application developers who desire this mesh connectivity. But if you talk to the CCIEs, they will say, oh, we can do this with Hub and Spoke. But yeah. Hub and Spoke has the, the ricochet, the ricochet hairpinning effect is what they want to avoid. I, I think that I, I think the other interesting point to watch out here is some of these peering models are very, very well known in the routing world. So if you follow the tenets that were applied in the routing world and actually mm. work through those tenets to make sure you reduce uh, what they call as a tromboning effect in networking and make sure you have you know shortest paths that are selected or the best preferred paths that are selected depending on the cost what you pay and then scale your peering models because you're going to see a ton of uh, VPCs that's going to be deployed more and more, the cloud becomes regional because of all sorts of data privacies and whatever yeah. different they come in, right? There's a piece of architecture missing here, I think, for all of us, especially those that have plumbed up into the cloud. And that is, if let's just keep a simple example of hub and spoke. Yes. What is the spoke connectivity? Is it an overlay, a tunnel of some sort? How are we actually connecting between the hub and the spoke in the ArcOS architecture? The spoke connectivity there is an overlay. So see, this is the beauty of the integration when you start off with an ArcOS type architecture where the underlay, the ArcOS customers today, we have deployed in few thousands of nodes across the, across the globe. And the routing centric architecture that we started with, the layer, the what we call the layer one, layer two, layer three is really, really tight. Now you innovate on top of it with an overlay with an IPsec or L2TP or GRE or even VXLAN now, the spokes have, if you deploy the spoke in the data center, you can do it predominantly using a BGP and you don't need an overlay. But if the spoke is in AWS or Azure or any cloud environment, you can come in completely as an overlay with IPsec inter intersection. 
now you have the flexibility where the spoke necessarily doesn't have to be in the cloud. It can be the data center and the hub can be there. And the beauty about BGP in this is it gives you all that you need along with the HA and the backup parts and the ECMPs that you need. So mm. you have all the belts and whistles that you need with the control plane. Okay, it's an IPsec tunnel to connect me between that public cloud uh, VPC and my on-prem, let's say in this case, but Arc Orchestrator is taking care of that for me and it looks to me like just another BGP path where I've got BGP neighbor across that tunnel, uh, that IPsec tunnel between hub and spoke? Yes, effectively, yes. And you have the peering set up. The peering mm. is there to announce selectively. Maybe you push routes from just hub. Maybe if needed, you push the routes from spoke. That becomes a matter of policy. It is all set and well understood in that part of the world, yeah? So that ARC orchestrator really is leveraging the, the power of BGP that we know works from the internet to achieve these amazing claims that you're making here. The beauty of it is in the way we deploy and manage. So if I take the last sentence of uh, Kayor and then combine it with the question mm -hmm. here, the ARC orchestrator, edge for all practical purpose, the customers don't even touch it. They, it just gets inserted into the VPC when you point, this is the VPC ID, these are the IAM privileges, these are the ARN keys, and whatever you prefer the, based on the cloud account, how it is set up, the ARC orchestrator deploys the ARC edge in any form factor that you designate. The same thing if you designate saying that ARC edge has to go into the data center, it, it gets deployed in the data center as a VM from the orchestrator. Mm. Now, from an arcade element, then the configuration side of it kicks in where you say that, okay, the personality of arcade in the data center uses the BGP and the BGP infrastructure predominantly. So everything is a routing centric uh, configuration there. Mm -hmm. Where in the arcade that goes into AWS, we can configure from our orchestrator and said, hey, you are going to talk mostly using IPsec or the overlay uh, infrastructure, not so much in the BGP, but they mm -hmm. can exchange the routes. They are two spokes in this architecture. They will talk to each other in their respective language. And for the operator, it's just one unified infrastructure after that. And that is that is what we've been able to uh, innovate here, is like mm -hmm. you need to abstract the personalities irrespective of, it's a, it's a distributed infrastructure and they are yeah, all first yeah. class citizens. So you don't have to, you don't have to distinguish the arcade and one uh, infrastructure to be superior or anything like that. They're all the same. And I think the other thing here too is um, in the prep notes that you gave, you also wanted to highlight that the BGP integration is really important because it binds the underlay and the overlay together. You're actually seeing visibility in the underlay because you're taking BGP routes from the cloud and from the local networks. Yes, we, we just have applied architectural tenets that we typically deploy inside a service provider world across the cloud with an overlay connections um, and, and try and simplify that architecture because as you scale to thousands and thousands of VPCs, your peering sessions also have to scale. And so just applying those tenets back into the cloud environment um, gives us a big boost and allows us to leverage in that side mm. of the world. Needless to say, it makes a single fabric between data center, across data center, into the cloud, yeah? Yeah. If you're speaking BGP to the underlying network, how does this mean that the Arc Edge and the Arc Orchestrator works with the Direct Connect provider? So, you know, if you've got a Megaport or an Ariaca or an Equinox providing Direct Connect, do I still need them if I've got all of those routes in place and I've got the routing information coming in a viable form? It's actually easier in sense that Direct Connect provides us as a, think of it as a straight pipe, which is encrypted and we do not have to worry about any sort of uh, data privacy on that. So it's practically for uh, lack of uh, better words, a hmm. nice little pipe that just takes us from data center straight into an Amazon cloud. So the another point that we have to consider is the layer two. What uh, what the likes of Megaport and Equinox and other examples that you gave, they do a lot of these 802, 180, Q and Q, and they they rely exclusively on what they call as a virtual cross connect. The virtual cross connect, if you if you if you unpack it and look in the cloud infrastructure, virtual cross connect 
in as part of the pops that they manage is just fine. But in the cloud, especially um, AWS and Azure, you have to open up the EAFs. And even though there is uh, not much of a limit to the EAF, the configuration side of the EAF is not easy. And as yeah. you go across multiple regions, hundreds of VPCs, you are now managing hundreds of EAFs with their own IP address mechanisms and everything. And mm. very soon you lose control over it. So a lot of the SaaS customers that we encounter and we they have few hundreds of VPCs and they have few four gig multiples of direct connects and express routes. They right now are deploying Arcage on either side of uh, the direct connects. So they don't, they can, mm -hmm. the tyranny of EAFs, like one of our customers said, there is a yeah. tyranny of EAF going on here. I don't want that tyranny. Can you end it for <laughs> us? Like, uh, so let me try and break that down. What you're saying is that when you start using direct connect providers to hook your private data center to the public cloud, you start having uh, these intermediate pieces of equipment or intermediate network hops you're calling them EAFs. And that's where the data comes out in, out of the direct connect provider into the public cloud provider. And there's limits there. I've heard of different limits. Like for example, uh, someone was telling me that if you come in on a direct connect into Azure, you can only access about 50% of the services. They're not even accessible from the direct connect. You have to come through the, through the internet for others. And the same thing on AWS, there's a whole bunch of restrictions on what direct connect can do, but you're also alluding to the fact of that they only scale so hard. You can only have access to so many VPCs or am I getting something wrong there? I feel like I am. It's the summation of it that you have to go through. What you just described is all individual problems. So in a given environment, when you have 500 VPCs, think of it as three cloud regions and few multiples of four gig direct connects, then the number of EAFs you have to manage, the number of connections you have to build, number of yeah. Q and Q that you have to uh, put in the order and Megaport has to manage or Equinox has to manage, they are all, they very soon become astronomically high. And Yeah, because they've got a four gig limit per and, circuit or something like that, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, and the lags that the Megaports and others support with their virtual cross-connect, you have no control over the route optimization. So if you look, the BGP infrastructure enables you to have this visibility into multiple routes available between a source and a destination across the direct connects. And the enterprises and the SaaS providers whom we work with, they would love to have that control saying that, hey, I, I would prefer to go down this route rather than the other route that the likes of Megaport is asking me to go. Where is that control for me? Today, I don't have that control because right. you're tied in the layer two. That's what one of the customers said. Can you please help me to come out of this layer two tyranny? <laughs> a lot of that direct connect stuff is quite specific. And a good example of that um, is if you look in SD-WAN world, we used to do PPR or latency-based routing where we used to do end-to-end -end, uh, selection mm. of between multipath, which path to select going through internet, right? If you had a mm. bunch of exits, which one to pick? It's exactly the same that she was talking about as to when the multiple paths are enabled, which one to pick, how do you choose? Because you don't have necessarily a control or between you and the endpoint, uh, hmm. how that data packet was going to be routed. Yeah. So you're saying you can override you know, the underlying routing policies by third parties by, since you've got an overlay between hubs and spokes, you can choose a path based on performance metrics that you're taking. Correct. So you have an option, first of all, with an overlay that you have a visibility to say how many paths are made available to you. Then you can impose or superlay a performance matrix parameters that are of your liking, depending on who the end customer is. And now you have an ability to pick and choose. If you if you look at it, for many people, this is bells and whistles. For us, it's not bells and whistles. It's the table stakes in terms of how it is operated yeah. in the cloud. Now, it's like there is a tax associated. There is, we call it the cloud tax or the cloud networking tax. The customer should not be paying that cloud networking tax. These are all something that it should be part of the DNA of the solution itself. What is more important there is to support the use case of say application workload migration. It's no longer a migration for the sake of migration where you want to move away from data center for good. It's the load balancing of the application workload between your data center and the cloud. So the microservices that runs in, we, we have customers who have uh, microservices that are their customer facing, and there are microservices that are their employee facing. These microservices 
run in both infrastructures, their own data center as well as AWS. So the application pattern today is to load balance these microservices, and you have to have a networking that enables that load balancing across, and you need the better path optimization. Mm -hmm. You should be able to visualize which path is better than others, and you should be able to do all this optimization at both layer three and above. That optimization is what we are able to provide to the customers today. Yeah. And I know when we first started talking about this uh, product, you're telling me that the integration between the overlay and the underlay was a key aspect. And I think today I actually understand that better because you're speaking BGP between your nodes, but you're also speaking BGP down to the devices in the underlay. So you'd be speaking to AWS's routing instances or uh, yep. Azure's routing it and pulling yep. that, and you'd be speaking to Equinix or whoever the interconnect provider. You'd be taking the routes from all over and then using that to feed into the pathing decisions or because the, I imagine the Arc Orchestrator is actually building policy with that as part of the routing policy. Yep. So from a plumbing standpoint, if, if you look at it, if you step back and see the way we see this, particularly just from a networking plumbing standpoint, we see these cloud providers as a next generation of uh, internet providers, if you will. And the kind of policy routing and the tenets that were applied there are naturally going to extend into this realm. And how do you sort of seamlessly fit both the worlds together using the same uh, routing tenets to get where you want to is what we are after. Yeah, it, to me, it's, it's what you're saying is you're, you're taking all available information from wherever it is. Exactly. And a lot of the time people build these uh, multi-cloud overlay networks and they put two endpoints and then just sort of everything that's in the middle is assumed good. What I think you're saying is you're using BGP to peer across the network wherever possible to get visibility into the underlay. So you'll peer with the AWS VPCs, you'll peer with the interconnect routers and extract data from the systems to try and peer into the underlay to see if the underlay state is sound. Because if you're pulling the routes out of a VPC or a VNet, you're actually knowing what the underlying state of the network is. It's fairly, it's not perfect because you're still not knowing what the internet is doing or what the, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. So two things there. In doing that, the scale as well as the routing side of HA is punted to the protocols and the likes of the protocols. And from the internet's uh, reactivity standpoint, now you can reuse the performance matrix that folks have been using for years and you could leverage that to pick and choose uh, what exit points or what transit links you want to choose uh, and when you want to choose, uh, depending on how the condition or how, how good the links are, yeah? Yes. And whether they're working. So just because your router is pulling the routes from the VPC, but all of a sudden you lose the default route to the front end, then all of a sudden you know the VPC's lost connectivity or someone's dropped in a transit VPC or done something weird. You've got some sort of feedback about what's happening. When you have a multi-cloud transport, you cannot be 100% transport agnostic. You cannot ignore that the transport could be internet or part of a shared infrastructure. It could be direct connect. It could be an MPLS. It could be an SD-WAN combined with something. So the variety of transport mechanisms, transport pipes that are available today, you cannot be 100% agnostic to it. You need to have a, a sufficient intelligence and a knowledge of how it operates, be able to optimize it, and then provide the services in the overlay as, as appropriate there. And, and the most important thing that you have to remember is no performance degradation. If you are deploying an application and you have variations in the latency, packet loss, or jitter, how do you manage them and have this predictable, consistent SLA that the application connectivity and application performance is provided. Like there should mm. be that consistency there is what I'm saying. And that consistency, you cannot just say, you cannot punt it and say, hey, internet will take care of it. No, you have no. to have that intelligence and optimize for it. Especially when you, again, let's come back to the issue that you raised earlier, you, Arcus, and in this case, the, the multi-cloud product, which is the combination of ArcEdge and Arc Orchestrator, you're talking about scale and performance in networks which, for goodness sakes, have 16,000 VPCs. These are substantial issues. If you've got a smaller cloud network, you might not be running into these exact problems, but you will one day. If cloud keeps going the way that people are talking about it, you need to think about where your future position is. Just to summarize what you just said, it's the 
application performance impact, whether you have thousands of VPCs or hundreds of VPCs, the, there is an impact on the application performance based on the connectivity. And it varies a little when you have thousands of VPCs and then you have hundreds of VPCs. The architecture should take care of it irrespective of that. Or when you scale from hundreds of VPCs to thousands of VPCs, these problems should not manifest. Now, one other aspect that you um, emphasize here is the cloud-native integrated security. So let's dive into what you think of as cloud-native and integrated security. You start with the security groups. You need to, when we deploy the Arcage, we inherit, obey, follow the security policies that are set by the CISOs of the enterprises. And as part of that implementation and deployment, every VPC has its security group they have these security policies defined by the cloud accounts. There is an IAM privilege that is given mm, to yeah. the people using it and the application access that is associated with it and the route tables. You inherit a portion of the route table, full access to the route table. How do you manage the traffic in conjunction with the service groups? You have to have all of this cloud native uh, behavior built in. So when we deploy the Arcage, we are 100% knowledgeable with respect to this. So when you say cloud native, you actually mean AWS IAM uh, privileges. You're truly cloud native, exactly what's there. And uh, you said an important word there, important to me anyway, you said inheritance. So as ArcEdge comes up, you are bringing in the policy that's already been written. So, so a CISO is happy. Um, you're participating in that scheme that's already been established. Bingo. The <laughs> most important thing, what you just said, is we don't ask for any special permission. We don't ask for any special IAM. We don't ask for any special service group. No special preference for us. We, we will be like any other infrastructure component deployed by AWS or Azure. So IAM inheritance, that, that's one thing. But then you know, what if there are more elaborate security policies that have to do with, say, uh, service chaining? You're integrating with a firewall that's part of the inspection path. Can you integrate with that as well? Yes, from our perspective, that is something that we want to cover it using the routing control plane that we built, the service chaining aspect of it. Everything should be covered through the control plane that we are trying to build over the top. When you do service chaining, the service chaining usually is done at a VPC to VPC level. So that means that traffic management in terms of where the firewall is placed, where arcage is placed, where the load balancer is placed, irrespective of the deployment variation there, we can handle the traffic within the VPC. And that is something that we take care of as part of the service chaining. And the, I think also the thing here is that you could actually start small here because you're just tapping into a small part of the IAM or um, you're following the existing security policy. This doesn't mean that I have to go and rip and replace the whole networking infrastructure and throw Arquas in there. I'm hearing that I could actually start by just implementing the um, Arc Edge appliances in the parts of the network that I want and then progressively roll it out over time? 100% except for one or two customers that we have, every customer that we are dealing with in the last few quarters, they are all brownfield implementations. They already have few tens, hundreds of VPCs in their AWS infrastructure or Azure infrastructure or both, and they expect us to deploy Arcage in their existing infrastructure that is already built out. So that yeah. means they have yeah. the VPCs, they have the policies, everything built out, and we go in as a brownfield implementation. And here is the thing, they won't give full traffic access to us. Say, for example, they will say, you're going to take care of only one segment of the traffic, say an, a web traffic for Nginx form, and Nginx form only for a certain microservice, they say that will go through our cage. Everything else goes through the AWS infrastructure. Even for that scenario, where a subset of the traffic is permitted to go through us, we work very well. The world is all brownfield now. There's very little touch opportunities for greenfield, and I think we have to recognize that. The other aspect I wanted to ask was if I've got a bunch of existing tools like firewalls or uh, packet capture engines or inspection capabilities or that sort of stuff, uh, network services, are you compatible with those? 100%. It's almost like mandatory in the RFPs that uh, customers ask. Uh, in the, 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 without that, 
they won't even entertain us in the subsequent conversations. And what is the most important element there? The most important element there is the ecosystem. It's a shared infrastructure ecosystem. So the services that are getting deployed, we rub shoulders with the security services, orchestration services, CI/CD services, and some of the monitoring services like Datadog type uh, log analytic services, they are all deployed in the same infrastructure that we also get inserted in. So we need to be cognizant. At times we have to integrate and many times we have to be 100% compatible with all the services. And yes, hmm. we, we absolutely- uh, Right, so if I had to channel traffic into a firewall and out of a firewall because I needed to have some sort of compliance to insert a, Fireable, whether it's useful or not, because that is not always useful, but sometimes I do. That sort of thing is supported within the ArcEdge Arc orchestration tool set. So another topic we wanted to quickly cover off, and I feel like we're sort of going through some tick boxes here to some extent, um, orchestration. Can I orchestrate the ArcEdge Arc orchestration tool chain? Like, do you have northbound APIs so I can include it in other, other tool chains? You mentioned about the playbooks, um, the Terraform and the Ansible playbooks. So the majority of our infrastructure is available in the form of an API. If you have CloudWatch or if you have any of these observability platforms and if you have any API gateways where you have all this, say, a scripted infrastructure that uses only the curl commands and you want to deploy and manage and monitor, say for the sake of discussion, you want to do it, all of it is just using curl commands. You can 100% do that. We give you a, a, a big list of curl commands in the form of a spreadsheet or something. And uh, <laughs> like we yeah. say to our customers, knock yourself out. <laughs> I could imagine if I've got a CICD pipeline and then I've included the ArcEdge networking into a container infrastructure, you know, I've got an EKS instance and I'm running a service mesh inside of the EKS. I want to be able to instantiate the ArcEdge instance are using a Terraform playbook. I don't want to have to suddenly go off and issue a manual command. So that means that you're coping with that sort of stuff. I guess um, the last section that I think we want to talk about, getting towards the end of what we're going to talk about today, is your market focus. It seems to me that um, some of what you're talking about is that you're going to be very attractive to a certain type of customer. What sort of what sort of market focus are you looking at? It's actually pretty broad. Right now, we have customers who are the mid-sized enterprise customers. We have large enterprise customers. We have plenty of SaaS customers because if you deploy the, the SaaS infrastructure using SaaS factory of AWS or uh, any of the cloud providers and their architecture, you're deploying it in multi-cloud regions. So from a vertical perspective, the technology vertical, within technology vertical, the SaaS organizations and others are very popular. The financial services, think of as a stock market or any big bank where they are providing these uh, uh, mobile uh, infrastructure using microservices for their customers. Yeah. Uh, financial services is a big part of it. On the Azure side of it, predominant Azure customers for us are the retail customers today. So a lot of them have a digital-first e-commerce strategy, and this is the post-COVID era. In this yeah. post-COVID era, the digitization has become so important um, we are actually surprised that many of our evals are getting accelerated in the last two months. We thought okay. there's going to be a slump and no, they are not going to. Instead, we had to rush through many of the evals over the last two months. And, yeah. uh, and that's the reason we are, we are having this conversation. So it's, it's right now across the board, like we look at it in terms of use case, mostly in terms of the cloud accounts and VPCs in their data center IP class. Any mm -hmm. customer who have... A uh, few tens of cloud accounts, few hundreds of VPCs, they are all, irrespective of their revenue size, they are all interested in us. We didn't say the dirty words of digital transformation, so I appreciate and thank you for not saying that word. That was quite something. Because <laughs> 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 we've gone through this whole pro the whole show without actually saying those words. Um, I want to wrap this up with some summary of the differentiators because I think there's some key takeaways that you could actually say about this product which differentiates the Arcos uh, approach to multi-cloud networking, which is quite different. So let's run down them. Tell me three things about the Arcos uh, Edge, the Arc Edge, the Arc orchestration tool for multi-cloud that Arcos Networks offers. Let's go through those and what makes you different. The first difference, I think we've said this many times, is flexibility. 
the, both from a form factor, both in terms of your migration journey from VMs to containers and on-prem, and then ability to provide this flexible fabric that extends and integrates into your data center IP class as a border leaf. You can instantiate our ArcEdge as a border leaf integrated with your IP class, and the same ArcEdge is available within the VPC, and it can be inserted through the Kubernetes as part of the container pod. It's the same data element that is across the board, which means feature parity, code quality, the performance, and all the benefits that we spoke about is going to be very consistent and predictable. See, to, to us, that one unified scalable architecture. And I was going to say that because you've been developing a network operating system for several years, there's a level of confidence here that you've actually got a BGP stack that works and that you know networking and that you understand what a customer network looks like. So that is a part of it as well. What about scale and performance? Flexible architecture doesn't mean you compromise on scale and performance. We actually scale and perform much better than any market alternative today. So if you take a given instance level performance, we are 2x to 3x the performance. In fact, many of the evals that we are winning in the market today is because of the scale and performance that we show. Actually, the interesting thing there is um, that the scale uh, from a control plane perspective is inbuilt to a level where today, you know, if you look at AWS or if you look at any cloud infrastructure for them to ingest more than half a million routes would be really hard, but the control plane scales over millions and millions of routes. So one of mm. the things we make sure is as and when the cloud infrastructure scales up, from half a million to million to two million, as and when they do, the control plane is always ready and you do not need to upgrade or replace that control plane. So we have a tremendous scale and performance in build needless to say. HA is also covered as part of that, yeah? All right, so high availability, resilience, failover. We didn't talk about exactly. that today. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't talk about it because there's so much more to talk about, but really the next step is to get in contact with you and start working through the intimate. And then I think the last um, differentiator is this ability for you to put the arcage at the edge of my existing data center. So my physical on-premise data center, I've got instantiation there into my cloth fabric even. Indeed, and it, it just, the, the net result of that should give you a unified fabric. And as an operator, it should not be that you are managing two different networks and the cost and complexities involved in managing the two different networks, but it should be one single fabric, yeah? And that's I think that's really interesting in the sense that any multi-cloud sets out to build a single fabric, but I would suggest that, you know, from the discussion we've had today, that your vision of that end-to-end -end fabric is somewhat different to what most, some of the others are. Every vendor's got a feature set or a capability, but yours is unique in this sense. Yeah, and we'd like to clarify to that point that you could still have a overlay connection that uses a different uh, forwarding mechanism, but a single fabric from a manageability standpoint, but from the software maintenance standpoint, the, the product maintenance standpoint should still be there. So even if you're doing VXLAN in data center and IPsec at the edge, um, the overall net effect should be as if you're managing one fabric as opposed to, oh my God, these are two different fabrics. I have to watch for A, B, and C things when you're stitching these fabrics together. Yeah. Well, I think there's an operational aspect and there's a design aspect here. So operationally, it looks like one fabric and the orchestration tool lets me operate all of the network as a single fabric, but there's still visibility into the individuality of each cloud. Um, some solutions take away my reach into what's actually going on in the underneath and just hide it all away from me. You're not necessarily taking it that far. Yeah, you've articulated way more better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> let's be let's be realistic, right? The world is moving towards a unified orchestration. Kubernetes is becoming front, center, middle, top, bottom, everywhere. And it's not just for the enterprises. It's not just for the cloud providers. Even for the service providers, Kubernetes is becoming... It's, it's, it, the underneath orchestration principles are pretty solid. So that means over a period of time, we anticipate all of our element to be orchestrated by a common orchestration platform. Could be Kubernetes or could be something, something better uh, in few months time or few quarters time. So our ability to be orchestration ready, whether it is as a microservice component, whether it's as a virtual machine or on any bare metal devices that you can think of, and ability to support that with all the other benefits we spoke about, 
is actually is a differentiator. We did, that's why we hesitate to put another abstracted managed console on top of what is already there, because that means you have to redesign the network, relearn it, one more console to maintain, one more SAML uh, authentication you have to make. So many things that comes in. Instead, we would like to integrate with your existing orchestration that is an orchestration of your choice. And that's that world is moving towards that. I mean, if you if you look at how the data center side is done, how the cloud is done, they're all moving towards that. And we want to be in that bandwagon rather than something separate of our own. Yeah, I think that the East-West Federation, as I call it, or East-West orchestration, where the future is a lot of orchestration in the sense that in the multi-cloud, you've got AWS and its orchestration engines and Google's orchestration engines. And then you've got your on-premise and you're having your orchestration engines being built there. Some of them are automation, some of them are hand-rolled, some of them are you know tools that you've purchased. Um, that East-West Federation of orchestration tools is now mandatory. And that is where the future is, I think. You know, people should talk to you if they want to understand more about that. Well, we're reaching the end of today's show. We've, um, I think we've actually had a fairly long discussion on how ArcEdge and Arc Orchestrator rounds out the Arcus networking portfolio, which is pretty interesting because to my mind, Ethan, it's a reflection of the fact that Arcus started with the network operating system on the switch in the data center. And now what they're saying is we take that same concept and say, where does that need to go? And the answer is into the multi-cloud. Is there anything that stands out for you? Well, just to follow up on what you were saying, Greg, it's the beauty of disaggregation. When you have a disaggregated architecture, that's the kind of an overall architecture that you can build so that you end up with same programmatically accessible interfaces and same look and feel anywhere that you need complex networking to go. Yeah. And that also means that your physical data center, your existing data center can now get more tightly integrated with the multi-cloud or as we've talked about today, just how that works and at scale. So if you want more information about Arcus Networks, head on over to their website, arcus.com. That's A-R-R-C-U-S dot com, where there's a whole range of stuff. They've got a specific landing page uh, associated with this, which is arcus.com slash multi-cloud network, all one word, multi-cloud network. Uh, if you do contact them uh, because of what you've heard here on the show, give them, a, give them a nudge and say you heard about it on the Parker Pushes because that's always exciting for everybody involved to know that we actually did something that was worthwhile. And thanks very much to Arcus for sponsoring today's show because without them, we would not be here to be able to bring you this fine content and to get into, uh, I, I did give you some hints at the beginning of the show that we can get more leaders of blood out of a stone. And I think today we might've actually proven that to some level, maybe you you get the whole idea. So again, arcus.com, A-R-R-C-U-S.com. You can get more information about how their multi-cloud solution goes together. And of course, as always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter as at packetpushes. Find us on LinkedIn. Like us on Apple Podcasts because that really, really helps us. But always, always remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>